Have you made an honest review? Jump onto fifthwrist.com and read real takes by real owners about their watches. And of course, get involved and write about what's on your wrist. Fifthwrist.com is your independent space to talk watches. Welcome to the Independent Thinking Show for Fifth Wrist Radio. This is a place dedicated to showcasing the great people doing interesting things in the world of horology. My name is Roman, and today I'm joined by my frequent co-host and friend Adam from Medium Watch. Hello, Adam. How's it ticking? It's all good. How are you? I'm very well. It's always always great to do a podcast with you. Um, today's no exception. Um, we've got a great guest. All right, let's try to. I'll have to take a deep breath in to do his intro. So, our guest today is an authority on all things Petek Philippe. He first studied the art of clockmaking and restoration at the American Watch and Clock Museum in his hometown of Bristol, Connecticut. In 1997, he started at Sotheby's, New York, before joining the Henry Stern Watch Agency, also known as Petek Philippe USA, in 2001. After a decade at Petek Philippe, he joined Christie's in 2011 as international head of watches before launching on his own, creating Collectability LLC, a sales and education venture dedicated to all things vintage Petek Philippe. He is a gentleman and a scholar and an author of three books devoted to Patek Philippe, which are impossible to find anywhere. With a bio <laughs> like this, he can only be one man. So it's our absolute pleasure to welcome Mr. John Reardon to Fifth Wrist Radio. Welcome, John. Oh, thank you so much for that kind introduction. And uh, the most important thing is if you write a book that no one could buy, no one could criticize it. So uh, it's highly recommended to, to try this strategy. Is that the, <laughs> the strategy? strategy. Genius, genius. <laughs> um, no, look, and the reason I sort of put a little dig in the books is I'm a big sort of appreciator and collector of horolo- horological books. And, you know, the Reardon Patek Philippe books are sort of high on the list. Um, anyway, they're, they're the elusive unicorns. They're the master grand chimes of my of my little oh, world. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to have to solve that problem for you. <laughs> oh, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Well, look, no, welcome. Uh, wonderful to to have you. Wonderful to have you on. I know both Adam and I have been big fans of Collectability, your podcast, uh, which has been really a fantastic way that you introduce Patek Philippe and kind of demystifies, not the right word, kind of make more accessible the quite forbidding world of Patek Philippe that I find, you know, whenever a new aspirant to the canon of Patek Philippe comes along, you know, the reference numbers, the sheer history, and sometimes the snob factor that often unnecessarily accompanies Patek Philippe, um, you manage to kind of, yeah, sort of make that much more approachable, which is wonderful. So thank you. Oh, oh thanks for that. It's, it's funny because I don't think of Patek Philippe as having a snob factor, but when I was first indoctrinated into the brand, we'll call it, <laughs> very, very aware of that. And uh, yeah, it's, it, it is there. It's, uh, but that's, I, I mean, that's the beauty of collecting is I, I think I know Rolex snobs, Vacheron snobs, mm. Enicar snobs, Longines <laughs> snobs, you name the brand that has their snobs. And right. uh, sometimes they're collectors, sometimes they're, they're academics. But we all have our, we're all characters in this world. That's what makes it go around. <laughs> Any particular memorable moments in your indoctrination? Since you used that word for it. It's, I've I, I shared it before, but, <laughs> and I might exaggerate this time around, but literally the first time that I understood Patek Philippe was being hit in the head by the chairwoman of uh, uh, Sotheby's, 
the one and only Darren Schnipper, who's uh, who's there today. She's been there since 1979, and uh, this was 1997. I was uh, an intern in her department, and the the first lot that I had to um, catalog was this huge pile of Rolex ephemera. Mm. In retrospect, today it would bring huge, huge money. Mm. <laughs> I mean, we're talking um, original displays, clocks, um, pressure testers, uh, vintage Rolex tools. It was it was actually a lot of fun. That was the first um, object in the watch world I ever cataloged, uh, at least for the auction, uh, for an auction catalog. And that's when I started hearing about Patek Philippe. That's what she was on the phone chasing some very important pieces. Um, and that's when I started to just be indoctrinated to come back to that word. <laughs> and, then, and then one day I said to her, I was like, I, I, I always thought Rolex was the best watch in the world. And then smack to the back of my head. And she said, John, it's all about Patek Philippe. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, we've got the tagline for the episode then. I've yeah, exactly. Grab. <laughs> Perfect. No, I think I'm uh, exaggerating because um, HR in America could have had problems with that back in the day. Sure. But, uh, I think Darren and I consider her uh, a friend and mentor um, to, mm. to, to this day. <laughs> And when you join Patek Philippe, uh, Henry Stern, watch engineer, Patek Philippe, US, there's no sort of hazing or induction ceremony. It's not like the Freemasons. You don't get sort of branded with the little you know, <laughs> symbol or something, uh, you know, branded for life. Because I, I know the brand, and, I, and you have spoken about it on your podcast as well, that the amount of loyalty and respect the brand commands from people who've worked there and left, or they sort of always feel like the, you know, the Patek Philippe is sort of sitting on one of shoulder, always looking over things. You know, it's quite a, that's quite a statement to say. Well, back in the day, it was just a Rolex tattoo, but now they, uh, <laughs> these microchips that are embedded in our brains. That's it. But, uh, <laughs> I can't even follow up on that. Part of that actually feels true. In a way, you feel so loyal to the brand mm. and in particular to the Stearns. Um, and to this day, if someone says Philippe Stern to me, I, I just, it's, it's just immediate respect and, and awe. And mm. uh, he, um, and, and hopefully we can talk about his personality a bit later, but he as an individual just demands nothing but respect. Everything at Patek Philippe really is born from the mind of a Stern. And, uh, and that being a family company is something that's very, very unique. I, I think if, if you work for Apple, you're always thinking of, of Steve Jobs. If mm. you work um, for, I'm trying to think of other examples of companies that have these cult-like uh, heroes. Tesla. Yeah, this. maybe Elon Musk. You know, yeah. love him. Yeah. Elon like, Musk. Him, like him or loathe him, but he's yeah. definitely a dominating presence in the company, certainly. In every single, whether it's a, a tag in a store um, or a product, has that. Uh, it, it's actually Tesla is a great analogy. Uh, it's the same. It's the same with Patek Philippe. It has his DNA uh, in, in his thought and his way of doing business, and that comes down to the way you treat people within the company, how you communicate, and um, and how you conduct business on, on a day to day basis. It's not just about the product. Hmm. There aren't many companies that have that philosophy indoctrinated so well into their employees today. 
and uh, and and I think and look back at my time at Patek Philippe, which a decade seems like a long time, but it was it was nothing compared to um, uh, many of my friends and former colleagues. It, it's a job that you keep for life, and mm. uh, they they still they still smile. We still go out for a beer occasionally, and it's it, it's still if you leave a company such as that, that's always remembered and never forgotten. Um, but as I've said before, I, I think we are all loyal soldiers to the brand, uh, no matter what we're doing, whether it's auction or retail or and now collectability. I um, I very much think about the brand and everything that I do, even though I'm completely independent and separate from it. Amazing. Well, uh, one of the ways we often kick off these episodes, we do a drink check and a wrist check. Um, I'm always curious if, if and, and pure and sobriety is absolutely welcome. By the way, so okay. there's no need to. <laughs> uh, uh, actually, we'll we'll start with Adam. If um, so, uh, speaking of sobriety, I've got my Coke Zero here, but uh, need something else a little bit more exciting. So I've got a Paddock Fleet. Hey, my, uh, Golden Ellipse thirty-seven forty-eight. Oh, well done, the blue gold <laughs> dial. Exactly. I figured. We're meeting John Reardon. He made hats with a golden ellipse on them. I have to wear this watch today. If, if you were not wearing an ellipse, I would be disappointed. So well done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well done. Uh, how about you, John? Anything on gracing your wrist? You know, I rarely wear modern watches these days, but uh, today it's a, it's a beautiful day in New Jersey. I, I had to wear a Nautilus. So I'm oh, wearing nice. a fifty-seven twelve. Now, I've been highly critical of the Nautilus, yet I still love it. What can I say? It's it, when it's on your wrist, it's just amazing. So, well, I mean, I mean, I've listened to a few episodes of your podcast, and when you guessed it, you you actually haven't been critical of the Nautilus. You actually admire the Nautilus a lot. You were sort of what you were expressing criticism of is the hype and the miasma of unnecessary baggage that now comes along with speculations and prices and all that though the watch itself you've always been very complimentary well said yeah i, I think you put it better than, than than i could ever it's um the watch i love it's mm. the hype around it it's, mm. I, I have a problem with that mm. <laughs> but not with the hype around the golden ellipse you seem to want more hype in that area, I guess. Or <laughs> it started off as something not so serious, and now the ellipse is um, very serious, and prices are going upward. <laughs> uh, not a day goes by when people are asking me for particular models of the ellipse, and uh, I, I love them, I, and I think it's great. It's it's almost um, it'll never be the Nautilus, but it is um, becoming a, a a collectible of note for many at an affordable price point. I mean. You get a, you get an amazing piece of Patek Philippe history, in many cases under ten thousand US. Mm. And Roman, what do you have today? Well, um, drinks wise, it's seven a.m. And, and it's so it's a little bit too early to drink, particularly when we have John on the show. I mean, I have to, you know, there's sort of be a bar I have to stay above. So I've actually got, just got a cup of tea here, but which is a bit disappointing. Um, watch wise. I thought I'd do a fifth wrist radio first. Now I don't own a Patek Philippe, and, I'm, and nor am I looking after one for the next generation. Uh, but <laughs> what I do have, knowing John's love of pocket watches, I've actually got our first pocket watch on huh. on the on the podcast. So this is a Charles Frotcham pocket watch. I'll see. Oh, respect. 
Uh, probably, you bought yeah, it from I'll the original owner. Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. So, yeah, it's, so it's a Charles Frodsham English pocket watch from, as far as I can date, the hallmarks from 1851. Uh, now, it was sold much later, though, so there's a family inscription on it as a gift from 1878. Uh, still ticks, still keeps really good time. The interesting thing about this watch, I only received it this week. There's a family crest on the back, and uh, I'll send you some pictures, but mm-hmm. hopefully you can see that. Now, and I've started doing a little bit of genealogical research. Now, I suspect this watch belonged to an American architect and art critic called... Russell Sturgis, who was one of the founders, original founders of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. So, so I'm still still doing a bit of. He's pretty sure it's their family logo, and there's a few Russell Sturgises in it. But the timeline sort of seemed to work like his. Anyway, so that's our first um, pocket watch on the Fifth Race Radio. I have to say, I am impressed. A half hunter, Frodsham, no less. Have you contacted? Did uh, Frodsham in London? They, their database is incredible. Yes, yes. So yeah, I, I had a, a brief email exchange with with Richard Stenning, uh, who is yes. the guy who runs it. A wonderful guy. I met him in London through the worshipful company of clockmakers, uh, which I think you're actually a livery man of as well. Yes, I, I know. Small, I am. It's a ring, you know, circles within circles. Sure. So yeah, no, Richard will help me. I'm sure will help me dig a little bit more through it. But yeah, very cool. And actually, speaking of pocket watches i watched uh, as we were saying before we started rolling i've been doing a bit of a deep dive into your the collectability youtube channel mm-hmm. and one of the videos you have there is how to care for a pocket watch and you actually told me how to properly close a hunter lid you got to push the button so you don't wear out the spring so yes. you know the, it's not about protect for leaps it's all about learning so you've been doing some you've been doing god's work <laughs> i am so impressed i just saw you close the watch the proper way so the future thanks you (laughs) well and and i know i know i've been sort of falling down a deep rabbit hole of pocket watches lately and i know you've been proselytizing if that's the right verb uh, about them for a very long time and the your latest video has actually made me i suspect add a gondolo and laborio patek pocket watch onto the list so that was a great video yeah it's 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 unfortunately it's a great video (laughs) (laughs) maybe wonder though uh did the gondolo pocket watch line have any similarities to the wristwatch line or did they just take the name oh for your your question like you're regarding the modern gondolo line yeah or the ones in the 90s Yes. So I, I just took a look of what we see today. If you look paddock.com under gondolos, and I have to say I was quite horrified. It's all ladies' diamond set shaped watches. Mm. This is, okay, I respect. There's some beautiful pieces in it, but for the branding calling those gondolo, this is all a 1980s, 1990s construct. Mm. Um, they borrowed the name based on the shaped wristwatches that we see 1915 to 1925 from Gondolo and Laborio. And when Patek Philippe started designating family names in the, the 1980s and 90s, Gondolo is just the, a convenient and exotic description of shaped watches that weren't round. <laughs> <laughs> To see it still used to this day in 2021, specifically and only for ladies' diamond set shaped watches, it just didn't it didn't sit well for me. I'm not one to criticize particularly, but that is just not an accurate description to honor the gondola legacy. It, the story is much richer and it's much broader 
than mm. um, quartz diamond pieces. <laughs> Harsh words. <laughs> as critical as I will ever get. So. <laughs> well, I uh, enjoy a 5014G. Yes. Which is uh, very fun to wear. And uh, I guess it's it's not one of the ladies' pieces from the recent years. It's from the 90s. when uh, you have one? Yeah. So that whole line, like the 5014s, 5010s, 5024s, those, I mean, are still such great value on a men or a women today. Um, I, I, and you could dress them up or down with various straps. And it's fun. We're starting to see more interest and in higher price points for those pieces. And uh, so I'm glad, you, I'm glad you have one. Which dial configuration do you have? So it's the black dial that has kind of the sunburst with the sub-second oh. and uh, the minute track that doesn't quite tell you exactly what minute it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then after that is the unsung hero of gondola watches, which is true to the original. And that's the reference 5098. Remember the platinum to no shaped watch that had a, a true guilloche dial? Mm. Um, oh, yes. yes. That 5098 is one of the most beautiful pieces. And uh, I have to say, no one really wants them today. But anyone, <laughs> ask anyone that has one, they say it's their favorite watch. Mm. Um, so it's like, I've been looking for one. I, I would love to have a 5098 in my personal collection. Very cool. Well, we will uh, set our sights out for them. So you mentioned your collection. Well, there are a lot of people that call themselves Patek collectors. So this is, I guess, a term in its own. It's not even watch collecting. It's Patek collecting, as if it's like its own, I guess, proper noun. Why do people choose to focus on this one particular brand? And are there really that many Patek collectors? I'm, I'm a watch collector that just owns mm-hmm. Pateks, as opposed to a Patek collector. Why, why does this exist? <laughs> I... I admit, I mean, this is no surprise. There are many Patek Philippe collectors that will not collect any other brand. And maybe that comes back to the snob factor we discussed earlier. (laughs) 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 And the storyline is is often, this isn't isn't every situation, but the the story that I hear from most, they're collectors that uh, they might have received a watch from their father. They were attracted to the concept of having a, a pocket watch or a, a, a nice wristwatch as, as a young young man and now women, because we have so many more wonderful female collectors. Mm. Um, there are collectors that focus primarily on Patek Philippe. They, I think this is very much part of um, the, the community of people that I'm in daily contact with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Many of my collector friends, we speak every single day, and uh, it's um, it's always about what's the latest, what's what's going on. And, and I guess I'm, I'm circling back to your collection. The answer to your question, the answer to to your question is why is the community so tight? It's because of communication. They, everyone wants to know what's new. Social media drives it to a, a new extreme, which we've never never seen before. And Patek Philippe has such a mythology around it. The people, um, past and present, most importantly, the watches. Mm-hmm. That even when a new vintage piece circuit, uh, a new vintage piece surfaces, I mean, we're all on top of it, all talking about it, and that's what makes it so much fun. I know this is true in every single collecting category, even outside of watches. But that's that's what makes it uh, fun. We're 
um, we're so hyper specialized in, in what we we all love and do that um, you tend to connect like with like-minded people, and it's now truly global. And thanks to Instagram and Facebook and other platforms, we're able to um, to communicate uh, more easily. And I mean, it's twenty four seven. I mean, we all do it. We're all on Instagram. It's uh, it's it's actually nice to do this podcast. I get to put my phone down for for some time. <laughs> So although uh, the Nautilus has many competitors, Patek's dress watches have very few these days. Why do Patek dress watches receive more attention than competing fine brands? It's just so dominant in this one particular space. Whereas the Nautilus, and there's the Royal Oak, there's uh, the Tona, there's all sorts of other alternative awesome sports watches out there. But the Calatrava, the Ellipse, uh, these are really superlative watches that don't seem to have peers. Patek Philippe has done a very good job historically. I mean, you could say this answer is, is true in the 1860s as it is the 1960s as, as it is today. Is for those in the know at a glance, you can see the watch and know exactly what someone has. And in many cases, you could kind of guess a bit about their personality or, or engage with them to find out why they have that watch. And that's what's so much fun about the Patek Philippe line. And yes, the trends change. I, I remember uh, this is in the early 2000s. I was in New York on, uh, in an elevator and uh, another uh, gentleman walked into the, the elevator and had an aquanaut on his wrist while I was wearing mine. And it was just a subtle nod of respect. That was it. And, uh, and you see that, too, in, in boardrooms, back when we went to boardrooms. <laughs> you had a Calatrava on your wrist. Everyone might do a little, uh, you know, a little wrist uh, flex uh, during a meeting. But what's so much, what's changed in the Patek Philippe, um, it's not even its design vocabulary, but the way it's been kind of socially accepted globally is that you could go into the boardroom and wear that an Aquanaut or an Autolus and still get that uh, that nod. and Or you could wear jeans and it could be on the weekend, you could wear a, a, a simple Calatrava and it makes perfect sense. No, one, no one's really going to know what you're wearing except people in part of our little community of Patek Philippe uh, aficionados will know. And that, that's, what I, that's what I love about Patek Philippe. So many pieces in the line. You could wear it on a subway, and, and no one would even notice it. And it's it's almost like a, a secret language, and uh, and that that's one of the things I really enjoy about Patek Philippe. But now we have pop culture embracing, um, in particular the the Nautilus in a way we've never seen before. So now that's an icon that's recognizable, just like the Royal Oak for AP or Rolex President or Daytona uh, for, mm. for Rolex. And and I think this is this is actually changing Patek Philippe as, as a brand, not internally, but the perception of the brand from the rest of the world. And and I wonder where this will will take the brand in the future. I like the mental image of a Calatrava being a wrist flex, which is because it's sort of a complete opposite to something like a Richard Mille being a wrist flex. You know, for a, mm-hmm. like sort of a signifier of like a head nod and a wink. And so I do like the the boardroom. Calatrava, you know, till that's very cool. <laughs> I've never considered yes. that. <laughs> I remember I was in a Barnes and Noble. That's global, right? You know, Barnes yes. and Noble oh, yeah. and yes. uh, an imperiled global b- bookstore. It's, yes. a book, it's not bankrupt yet, right? <laughs> 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 we went to bookstores. Um, yeah. 
Yes. And I remember seeing, uh, it was a Jack Welch, I think it was an autobiography. And he just right. had a yellow gold Calatrava on his wrist. And I mean, that's all that spoke to me. Mm. That's, that's all that I saw. And, uh, and it said something, I know nothing about him as, as a business leader. Um, but uh, it really kind of brought me into um, to his world. And I picked up the book. Mm. And then went home and bought it on Amazon. <laughs> oh, no. We're going to edit that out. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> no, but yeah, I guess the, the, point, the point being is, yeah, there is a wrist flex with yeah. even the most subtle pieces. And now I will call it the reverse wrist flex. I'm seeing um, men wearing smaller watches, these 32, 33 millimeter watches. Mm. There you go. <laughs> that... Ten years ago, it would have been hard to go out in public like that. <laughs> Today, you're you're considered like cutting edge, and that's considered fashionable, and people will engage with you about, oh, that's such a beautiful watch. Tell me about it. Mm. But it's mm. fun to see how things have changed so quickly. Mm. Uh, well, let's let, let's talk a little bit about about the brand. Um, I mean, Patek Philippe is a is a large independent brand now usually you know when we you know this is this show is called independent thinking often we've had watchmakers on or people representing their own brand they're much much smaller now do you think do, do you do you truly still consider Patek Philippe but a fully independent brand who does their own thing on their own agenda kind of completely divorced from the rest of the industry not completely divorced but you know sort of not being driven by other competitors sort of towing their own line the the cynical side of me wants to say that things are changing and they're they're going corporate, and we have seen some examples of that in the past. The romantic uh, heart of, of my <laughs> my view of Patek Philippe when my microchip is speaking. It's quite, yes. <laughs> I, I truly believe that it's it is. I mean, it's not. It's fact. It's a family-run company. And everything really has to um, pass through the family's hands in, in terms of decisions, and in many cases, watches before they, they are public. What we're seeing today is uh, Patek Philippe has experienced some growing pains, just as they've shifted to a more vertical production. Mm. Um, for I mean, this is true with any brand, or not, I shouldn't say, with many brands. The fact is, in the 20th and 19th century, they were buying parts and pieces from other manufacturers or e-bosch makers and finishing them in-house. Patek Philippe has done an extraordinary job bringing things in-house, in particular over the last 20 years, very aggressively over the last 10 years. And that's a storyline that's not really shared publicly. In doing so, you have more employees, more mouths to feed, more mm. HR issues, more, 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 more. Mm. And you have to get a bit more bureaucratic than you were in the past. Um, but is Patek Philippe fully independent? I mean, the facts state. But as anyone, as anyone grows, yeah, independence comes with uh, complications. I, I think it's uh, for any of us who have, um, have children or as our family mm. grows, that independence changes <laughs> as soon as there's a spouse and as soon as there's children and then there's parents. Um, your, your independence becomes interdependence. Sure. <laughs> now now well I'm getting philosophical, but this, this is how I see Patek Philippe has grown. Um, but the, um, in this case, uh, the family is running the show and, and their independence, uh, I truly hope, will continue for generations. 
So what's the impact of being family-owned, but not owned by the founding family? Uh, Does it matter? Oh, yeah, I love that debate. I love it. Because <laughs> in, the, in the 1930s, when the Stearns took control and Charles and John Stern took control, they kept a, a descendant of, um, of Adrian Philippe, I think it's the, the grandson of Adrian Philippe, um, on the board. Um, his name is Emile Philippe, and it was kind of a nod to the past. Hmm. Um, but uh, that connection soon ended when he passed, and then there were no founding members as part of, of the brand. Does it make the company less Patek Philippe? Should we change the name to Patek Philippe Stern? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> is there, it's, it's very interesting how history will answer that, that question. And uh, I, I really believe, though, we're almost we're on the eve of 100 years of um, mm. Stern control. We're on the eve of the fifth generation um, uh, rising to the helm of this ship. So I, I do think it's interesting historically to know that they did take over uh, the <laughs> brand. Um, but uh, history might uh, look at that differently because, I mean, 90 years is, is quite impressive for a dynasty. Um, Speaking of uh, four generations of Stearns, mm -hmm. how has each generation put its own fingerprint on it? Uh, that, that's such a great question because each generation is so so different. Um, I think we have to think of it from a Swiss perspective. Um, <laughs> the Swiss are not the most revolutionary people in the mm. world. They, they celebrate their neutrality. And, uh, <laughs> forgive the pun, their sternness. Oh, well, well done. Bravo. Well done. Well done. So it started with Charles and John Stern. I think they were the dial makers from, from Stern Frere. They really brought the discipline from dial making and brought it to a company that was buying parts from everybody and, and was actually relatively disorganized compared to Stern years. Mm. Um, so... They, they, they introduced the idea of reference numbers because they were using them for dials, but Patek Philippe never had reference numbers before the early 1930s. So mm -hmm. th these are some organizational differences. The one thing the Stearns did at that point and continue to do so today is they love to hire the best talent. They constantly throughout history, there's examples of finding and hiring the best watchmakers I mean, that's number one. That's what we're talking about. Uh, also, some of the best marketers, um, some of the best uh, managerial team. And uniquely, the tradition throughout the 20th and 21st centuries, people that were understated ladies and gentlemen who didn't have to put their ego out there like we see with some management of other companies that we're not going to mention. <laughs> no. This isn't about egos. If okay, if you're an independent maker, if you're Philippe Dufour, Philippe Dufour you are welcome to have an mm. ego. If you're Roger Smith. I want you to celebrate that ego. Hundred I mean, and the list the list goes on. If you're Rachef Rachefi, you should be all about ego. Yeah, mm. there's something in common with all of those individuals. They don't mm. have the ego. Mm. Their watches speak for them much, much louder. Mm. And that, that same philosophy is lived within Patek Philippe and with the upper echelons of um, 
mm. watch uh, watchmaking throughout throughout history. So, going back to your question, that Henry Stern, when he um, joined joined the company in the 1930s, when it was sent off from Geneva to uh, this little town called New York, he <laughs> his job was to open up the American market. He did not want to be in America. I understand. He wanted to be home. And sure. he fought he fought hard to open this market and spent over 20 years to open the US market through constant travel. And from my historical understanding, he really looked back at what uh, Antoine Norbert de Patek did in the 1850s, mm. originally to open up the US market. So I love how that, there's that 100 year, um, we'll call it uh, a time machine that occurred. I mean, mm. he literally looked back at the past in order to uh, reopen and reestablish and reconnect with the American market. And that those storylines you continue to see throughout Patek Philippe's distribution in the Henry Stern years, um, certainly in the Philippe Stern years as he opened Asia. I mean, mm. the same, same storyline continued. And mm. Thierry Stern today, if there's, if there's any Stern that understands travel, the importance of, of a handshake and face-to-face with your collectors, he he gets it, and uh, oh. I, he really has packed a lot of miles as mm. he's um, visited uh, almost every country. Well, he has visited every country that sells Patek Philippe globally, mm. and uh, and and I think only only COVID stopped him, and and he's he's getting back out there again already. And that that I have a lot of I'm very impressed. But to, to circle back about the the future, when I was in um, Singapore at the Grand Exhibition. In 2019, uh, I was just I was quietly watching what was going on, and I, and I I saw how Philippe Stern was um, was interacting like as he has for generations with with the public. Saw how Thierry was doing the same, but the part that really really spoke to me is seeing um, Thierry's sons, hmm. who were, were teenagers late in their late teens at the time, um, watching and learning from their parents, their grandparents. And, and that's how the Stearns do business. You, mm-hmm. you learn and you pass when the time is right. If they choose to join the business, the, uh, uh, the next generation will come in. And uh, it's, it's incredible to see how the traditions that go back all the way from 1932 continue to this day of how each generation passes the baton to the next. It's, it's discreetly, it's quietly, it's without bravado. But it's with um, hard work and, uh, and sweat at the end of the day, too. So there's another brand that's had really a multi-generational existence that's also independent, and that's Rolex, which has a nonprofit structure. Mm-hmm. Does it have a similar or different culture? And wow. uh, why? You know, it's. I've only had the pleasure of knowing a few people that work internally within Rolex um, over my, my watch career. And I've always been so curious of what their culture mm-hmm. was like. Because every day I ask me, they're like, John, all right, what's it really like behind closed doors at Patek Philippe? And people, they love the stories. And uh, it's, they, they want to know what, what's happening in the background. And I, I would like to know what's happening at Rolex. <laughs> um, I know so little about it. I, I Maybe because I practically have Patek written on my forehead <laughs> that I cannot get Rolex people to share anything with me whatsoever. <laughs> so I regret, I can't answer that question. 
it's very interesting. I mean, that 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 um, that respect to the founding fathers of the company, you know, that has now permeated four generations of the Stern family. Now five generations now. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting that they have that loyalty without feeling the need to put Stern somewhere on the dial at six o'clock position or on a case. But you know, it, it, it's quite interesting. I mean, it must be. It must be tempting at some point to to do that, you know, for somebody to, you know, we, we've owned this for a hundred, well, we've run this for a hundred years now, you know. Surely we belong together with the founding funds. Must be a. I'm, well, I'm his name is Philippe. Exactly. Right. Well, maybe that's why. So. Maybe that. <laughs> I didn't think of that. So you know, his nephew Patek Patek Stern might be taking the helmet one day. <laughs> Not there. It's even when I was there. They're very much part of um, almost every ma- well every major decision and many mm. small decisions, mm. but their their name is not uh, flaunted in any way, shape, or form. Mm. Um, the decision it really comes down to the business and managerial philosophy is every decision you make, every interaction you have with your client. Would you be saying or doing what you're doing if Mr. Mm. Stern was right here over your shoulder? Right. Yes. And sure. and that's that's how that that company is run. And it's not out of fear. It, once again, it comes down to respect, and and that's a big difference that we see today. Mm. Well, let let's think a little bit about the future. Now, now you you are our Patek Oracle. If, if, you know, you've been formally anointed. Um, how do you envisage looking at the Patek? lineup of watches now how do you envisage that evolving let's say over the next five years you know do you see major changes do you think tweaks in existing lines certain things discontinuing or you know what's your view on where they're going wow that's such a big question first with broad strokes i'm I'm a bit concerned with the designs we've seen in recent years uh increasingly and seemingly designed by cad Mm. i mean Every new design, it's like, all right, it's almost the design language of our era and not specifically mm. the design language of the Patek Philippe DNA. Mm. When they get it right, it's just like, ah, oh, it's just like an aha moment. I mean, you look at like the, if you look at beautiful deco lugs on a case or a dial that has the apertures that are so well balanced, um, when they get it right, it's, it's, it's just a home run. In, in my case, and I'm extremely traditional when it comes to watch design, when I see things that are being done that are kind of outside the traditional design vocabulary, I, I just, it, it doesn't speak to me personally. Now, the market still loves it and they still buy it, but I, I do wonder in the future if they will tighten their design vocabulary, if they'll have the luxury to tighten their design vocabulary to stay true to what a Patek Philippe should look like. Now, mm. the interpretation of that question is the problem. What should a Patek Philippe yeah. look like? And, you know, it, it's just opinions. I mean, my, my opinion means nothing in this. But uh, I, I think that as they are bringing in new designers, they should literally lock them into the museum <laughs> without any food, throw them some water, occasionally and let them eat, breathe and live Patek Philippe from their, the ancestors of the Patek Philippe's design 
mm. for 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 hours and days and, until they come out and and, and dare to um, put Patek Philippe on a modern dial. Mm. There are pieces, and I don't want to mention any specifics. That I just cringe looking at, and I'm just like they just um they're just I I don't understand. I, I just don't understand. And, and I didn't see that uh, departure until, and this is all just, this is so subjective. I have to say, this is just opinion. Sure, until of course. Of course. About 15 years ago, you started to see uh, a departure in uh, the infectious um, commonality of CAD design mm. infiltrate <laughs> the Patek Philippe design language. Wow, no, I said two critical things today. No, no. <laughs> well, that, that means you have to be extra positive for the next six months. That's fine. We're, we're just got to balance out the force, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that, that's so. Then let me just sort of ask a follow up. Then, do you think? And once again, this is subjective. Do you think this coincides with Geneva office taking more control from? I know because only in the past, you know, the Henderson Watch Agency, the Fedex Philippe USA had more sway at least that's my perspective do you think maybe some of those things you would have been a more moderate moderating influence if the usa team could have had a bit more say i don't know i think the 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 and, and you nailed it the importance of the american voice of employees <laughs> of protect philippe that that was waning in the 1990s. Mm. It, I mean, it still exists, but Patek Philippe, they need to listen to the global market. The U.S. is not their most important market. I mean, sure. it's, it's Asia. I mean, it's uh, uh, it's your backyard, not mine today. And and that is just so, so important to, to know. So they had to listen to a different marketplace. And, and you see it in their designs. Um, you see different... Um, different aesthetics, different case metals, different types of gem setting that would not be desirable to the American market, but they have to, they have to evolve with, with the times. Um, the one thing Patek Philippe has traditionally done a great job of is listening to their retailers globally hmm. from around the world. And over the last um, 20 years, they've done a great job of, I'd say a better job listening to collectors directly. I mean, they, really aggressively like we mentioned Thierry like met collectors face to face mm. and he's hearing compliments and criticisms and from what i've seen he's definitely getting criticisms and compliments people do not people do not hold back they share the good and the bad <laughs> and uh and they respond to it so this is why i have a lot of hope for the future i think their stubbornness is never going to win in this game uh, especially when you're winning hearts and minds of uh, uh, the buying public and a luxury goods with luxury goods. I think they're really listening. And, uh, and I, I have hope that what we're going to see in the future might not, uh, I mean, I don't want to say it's been, uh, let's just say, I think they're going to be hitting sure. it out of the ballpark 80 to 90% in the future, where maybe in past years we saw some more misses. Are there any new themes that might be injected into the design language in the past decade or two? I think we're seeing more um, of the rare handicrafts coming mm. to the forefront of Patek Philippe's offerings. In the past, it was always the quirky pieces, the artsy pieces, mm -hmm. who were made for Baselworld, 
And unless hmm. you were a retailer in Basel, you're not going to see them. But then yeah. they started making um, these beautiful books, the rare handicraft books, to really, they were bragging rights of what they can do. Hmm. And you see the, the reintroduction, well, no, the introduction of marketry, the aggressive reintroduction of the use of enamel, and um, the, which is something I really celebrate, more, more clocks. They're making more clocks than in the past. Oh, so we're seeing some things that um, didn't exist as, as, as much in the past. And I think um, the rare handicrafts might be a, um, let's just say, a, a louder, more amplified uh, uh, style Hmm. of a production that we'll be hearing about in the future because no one else can do it like they do, in my opinion. Yeah, it's interesting to see how everything evolves. So uh, AP basically has dumped its thin dress watch line. Mm-hmm. Jules Odmars is gone. Whereas we just saw the release of a new Calatrava recently, the 6119. Mm-hmm. Why has uh, Patek decided to double down and redesign the Calatrava rather than just exit this business and focus on other pursuits? The coming back to the design language of Patek Philippe from a traditionalist, mm-hmm. I really believe the true test is if you were to time travel and took back the watch on your wrists and went back 40 years, mm-hmm. would it be fashionable and desirable? Wearing it today, is it desirable? Mm-hmm. Going ahead 40 years, is it fashionable design and, and desirable? Take a watch like the 5196 Calatrava. I mean, that piece is, I mean, it's almost a spitting image of a 96 from the early 1930s. And 100 years from now, hopefully 200 years from now, it still still will be. Uh, the Ellipse, I think now that people are starting to celebrate this very distinctive Patek Philippe icon from the late 60s, that's something that 40, 50 years from now is going to be immediately distinguishable as, as a Patek Philippe as it is today. So I think Patek Philippe embracing the dress watch, it's part of their line. It's part of their tradition. And I think that, that um, that's going to stay a benchmark in the collection. I can't speak to Audemars Piguet's strategy because they're doing brilliant work. It's but they're selling for the now hmm. and, uh, and that, that works for now. I think Richard meal works for now too, hmm. but Absolutely. I'd like to look at these designs and see how they're looked at 20 years from now, even 10 years from now. I definitely agree. Uh, I know in my collecting, I've doubled down on Patek this year um, for whatever reason, and just in part because it feels so timeless. Uh, that said, going back to the Golden Ellipse, what is its future? So yeah, it's been around for over 50 years now, and it used to be a real centerpiece of the brand. And there were, I think, lighters and accessories and cufflinks and all sorts of crazy things made. And now it really feels like a niche product where there have been a few, there's been some limited editions. There's, I think, two references. Do you ever see it becoming more of a mainstream watch again, or do you think it'll just be kind of living on a little trickle like it currently is going forward? Yeah, I, I think it's going to live on a trickle. I mean, I don't <laughs> think that the future is about the Ellipse. I'd like to say that the Ellipse is going to replace the Nautilus as the, the go-to <laughs> iconic watch. 
<laughs> like to say that there'll be lines outside of your local retailer. <laughs> I'd like to see there's an ellipse selling for $450,000 that retails for 33000 US. None of this is going to happen. <laughs> Not even if it was worn by President Bush. <laughs> uh, for the record, Donald Trump did not have an ellipse. There was misinformation, fake news, and we saw on the internet. So we, uh, Presumably circulated by some of the texts. There was some uh, sort of, yeah, right, had like a, a golden bracelet. There was some sort of tight braceleted blue watch that he was wearing, although who knows what exactly. It's bunked. Is not what they believe. That's um, so the future of the ellipse. In all right, about in the year two thousand, I recall one less than one percent of the production of Patek Philippe was ellipse. Wow, I'm guessing today it's about the same, right. and I'm guessing in twenty years it'll be about the same. Um, what's so exciting is they're starting to use the ellipse as a um, canvas for mm. some of the rare handicraft watches. And I've seen some pieces recently. Um, well, they're in the, the, the rare handicraft book. And, and sometimes you see the people leak pictures on Instagram of uh, white metal ellipses with some of the most beautiful enameling that I've ever seen. Mm. And that that's fun. But okay, that they might make two a year. So it's not mm. a market maker but it's uh it's just fun to know it exists and uh we could all well, we'd all want it but, but the ellipse has the ellipse has a future but uh it's not uh it's not going to be overwhelming i, I really don't, don't think so. it, it's interesting because i've i've wondered uh in, in preparing for for for, you know, for our chat i've actually been doing a bit of a deep dive you know because your enthusiasm for the ellipse is very infectious infectious probably the wrong adjective to use during covid but you know <laughs> but um so i've been doing a deep deeper dive into the ellipse and i just wonder whether it needs a an iconic ambassador and i don't mean a paid brand ambassador but you know somebody who wears an ellipse not ironically you know somebody with style like a man of style or a woman of style John Reardon. John Reardon is one, obviously. I mean, he's, John Reardon is doing, he keeping that 1% of Patek Philippe production, you know, pumping away, which is great. But, you know, but somebody, you know, a, a celebrity or somebody with a big cult following, and it, actually it might, there might be, I can envisage a situation where it might break through into the mainstream, whether it's on the wrist of, I don't know, Ryan Gosling or somebody, I don't know, Ryan Gosling, get in touch if, you, if you're into ellipses. But, you know, but there'll be somebody who might, like a person of the zeitgeist, that it might actually just tip because who would have predicted, I don't know, the Daytona going berserk or, mm-hmm. you know, or even the, the Nautilus catching the crazy ride that it is now. It's You know, all these things, I think, <laughs> particularly with social media, where one odd moment away from the ellipse becoming the hottest thing because you know hype will always look for the next thing to jump on right the hype train yes and i think that uh that could happen and i cringe saying this isn't a suggestion (laughs) (laughs) management is listening to your podcast oh they do frequently yeah i'm sure of it so we are going to make a suggestion to them today definitely in order to make the ellipse catch on in that way it truly does need to be a bit larger mm. now i like smaller ellipse watches i think the 5738 is is probably the right size to build 
the, the canvas, any, any larger would, mm. be, would be too much. Um, and with the right, um, I don't say the marketing. Yeah. But you, like you said, if the, if the right people step forward and say, that's the right watch to wear, mm. it, that is possible that that could happen, but it has something going against it. It's not a round watch. Mm. <laughs> people love round watches. Mm. And this is sure. just the fact of, of life. Round watches. Why? Then rectangular watches and square watches. That's just a, that's just a fact of our horological universe. I think the ellipse might be that piece that helps people understand their watch doesn't have to be a circle. <laughs> so. mm. Well, the ellipse is, I think is a less threatening or less novel watch uh, case design than something like a square watch. I mean, the, one of my favorite Patek Philippe watches, and, I, and I'm pretty sure it's one of watches that you like is the annual calendar, the 5135, you know, oh, which, yeah. Which, yeah. which is sort of a squarey sort of turno square case with yes. the uh, yeah, and I'm a big fan of that. But you're right. When people think Patek Philippe, they don't think that watch because that's not round. You know, they think mm-hmm. of Calatrava. So, so ellipse might be that. It's different, but it's not different enough to be threatening in a sense. You know. So anyway, if they ever took a page from the Rolex Stella mm-hmm. media. And there was a line of, I'm just playing, having fun, of, of ladies' watches that were many different colors. And if you're the right crowd, you need to have the right hmm. ellipse on your wrist. You could see how that could take uh, take off. And in the same way, the 24 did for a certain time, the original 24. Hmm. The RDA tank certainly did and continues to do so. I, I could actually see um, the ladies' ellipse being that iconic style um, wrist uh, wristwatch. That, that actually could take on. Um, I could almost see it happening with women before before men. Mm. Who knows? We shall see what the future holds. So Patek has really participated in a lot of different product categories, including uh, cigarette lighters and cufflinks and pocket watches. So what is core to the brand? What does it really mean for a product to be a a Patek product? And can you imagine the company entering other product categories? Well, I think, well, number one, I think all of your listeners know this, and this is amazing, is since 1839, every Patek Philippe is listed in the extract from the archives. Mm. So you can get You'd get a order a birth certificate of your watch from whenever that uh, time period is. So that that and your cufflinks too. The cufflinks are listed. No cufflinks, no lighters. Um, many people have forgotten. Even in the early '90s, Patek Philippe um, tried to go multi-category and made high-end scarves, hmm. not the ones that were given as gifts that are put on mm. eBay. And so these <laughs> these scarves were quite quite special. And uh, were the highest quality scarf, higher than Hermes, higher than anything imaginable. And they were branded Patek Philippe. I don't know who made them for them. But that didn't work out. They're a watch brand. They shouldn't be selling scarves. Mm -hmm. Come back to the lighters, which are near and dear to my heart. They partnered with Calibri to make the the mechanism. They finished them in-house at Patek Philippe. And uh, this only lasted for two years. It, it didn't oh, work wow. out. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it was that short. Yeah. Such a short production run. Wow. 
it, it really didn't, um, it didn't take off. It mm. was, uh, they were, they were novelty then as they are now. And by the way, <laughs> one of the coolest novelties. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Beautiful things. But it's still a watchmaker trying to make something else. So it's, it's fun to imagine that Patek Philippe would further diversify into to jewelry. And they, of course they make rings and they've made necklaces, but this is, um, I think is outside of their, their core business. So I would, I would guess it will exist, but it will, won't be necessary. We're, we're not, um, we're not going to be seeing, um, Patek Philippe tchotchkes around every corner. I hope not. <laughs> we shall see. <laughs> well, well, let's, let, let's turn to your latest venture in your own, your current baby, which is collectability, which started off in 2019. You've picked the right time. Or a wrong time, depend all. You've timed it well with the pandemic, as you started just before, so you got settled while people were at home shopping, which is great. <laughs> so, um, so maybe tell us a little bit. So, I mean, you've got a very interesting things with it's a platform for both, uh, you know, for people to buy vintage Patek Philippe things, and also a really great educational resource for for people like myself who are very new to the brand, and you make that knowledge really accessible and really engaging. So maybe let's have actually just a chat about where are your customers coming from? So who is looking at collectability? Who is buying the vintage Patex that you've got on sale? Is it a global thing? Is it US-based? Just sort of wondering who your demographics are. No, it's it's quite global. I'd say over 50% US-based, uh, but the global reach is, um, is considerable. Um, from an educational point of view, just – Every day I wake up and I love it. I get tons of questions, emails, comments. Um, where, and especially when I started talking about the ellipse, I was getting all these wrist shots of ellipse and saying, thank you for allowing me to talk about my ellipse publicly. <laughs> it was, I was like, wow, I didn't realize there was shame in that. I was like, uh, so I just, I say what's on, on my mind and, right. uh, and, and then through the feedback, you're able to learn more and engage in conversations and hear these great stories. I love stories of people that have watches that literally have gone down generation to, to mm. generation. And and I try to keep the focus of collectability. I don't try. I do um, keep the focus of collectability as academic and uh, about literally sharing an education. And I'm still on that path. I'm always still still learning. And uh, And that part is wonderful. At the same time, it's it's no secret I'm selling watches too, because people love to watch a video about the gondola. Mm-hmm. They'll um, they'll read. They might hear a podcast with someone talking about how pocket watches are the future of collectibles, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they'll they'll go to the website and be like, "All right, I could buy an original chronometric gondola from 1905 for fifty five hundred dollars." Mm-hmm. That's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love trying to look under the rocks and kind of share some of these buying opportunities in the marketplace. And I always say, it's like for the price of a modern platinum Patek Philippe buckle, you can buy <laughs> for a lot less, a pocket watch. Mm. It has its mm. own extract from the archive and it's a living piece of, of history. And frankly, at the next dinner party is going to be more of a conversation point than your Nautilus that everyone mm. seems to be on, have on their wrist, including me right now. So, that is- <laughs> so it's kind of fun to, to see where, where it's all going. And collectability is really focused on um, just trying to share 
collecting categories that people haven't looked at before. Very cool. How does the market for dress watches differ from sports watches? Because you really do both. And you probably have more exposure to dress watches than a lot of other watch dealers do. Yeah, sports watches aren't uh, aren't really my thing. I, I don't do much with Nautilus. I don't do much with um, Neptunes and Sculpture, which are the sports lines of mm. the tech league. And nobody's talking about Neptune or Sculpture. So, <laughs> I've seen one once. Yeah, cool. They, they have their, their own niche. But uh, I, I think sports watches aren't uh, in my vocabulary as much as other dealers, especially those focused on Rolex. Mm. Um, it's just uh, it's just not not what I do. So a lot of the watches people are buying from me are are pieces that that are deeply emotional connected to pieces they might've seen on the wrist of loved ones in the past. Uh, sometimes they're highly controversial birth year watches. <laughs> <laughs> That's my shout out for you, Eric. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. Eric was a guest on, yeah, on the pre- previous guest on the podcast. Yes. And we, we did talk about his love of birth year watches requests. <laughs> uh, Happy to honor those requests. Sure. For some people, it's like, all right, I want, I need a birthday present. I want to spend ten thousand dollars, and I need something from nineteen sixty-eight. Sure. When they say that, I know exactly what they need, mm, and, and right. it's a gift that really resonates. Um, it might not work with other brands as well as Patek mm. Philippe. Um, well, well watches a, a vintage watch as a birthday present actually works much better it actually just occurred to me now than a vintage car from the same you know watches actually get preserved much better than other uh, goods for, with similar you know unless it's artwork or something but you know like a car from 1968 will not be necessarily a great birthday present you know it'll arrive on your doorstep rusted out and you know it'll be much harder to keep. so what's the airbags <laughs> i think a vintage watch is just kind of it's a fun it's a fun gift a wristwatch is very difficult to buy for someone it's so personal yeah uh, a pocket watch or even a, a solar clock something someone can put on a desk and it still tells yeah. a story mm. and also tells the time that's mm. that's a great gift and it's it's better than buying a uh i don't even know if they're still in existence like a herman miller grandfather clock from <laughs> that has no resale value so sure sure we might have to strike that because i don't want to pick on herman miller <laughs> Well, I've got an Aeron chair right here, so you know yeah, I'm a fan. I've got but, uh, a Eames upstairs. I've got a Eames chair upstairs, so it's all good. Herman Miller, you know we we we, we love you. We love you. They're not clockmakers. They're not clockmakers. Correct. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, let me let me think. Let me ask you this this question then. I mean, once again, so I'm relatively new to you know Patek Philippe Canon, so I'm just sort of learning as I'm going along. Mm-hmm. You know, historically, sort of complicated Patek Philippe pocket watches and wristwatches, you know, I'm thinking like perpetual calendars, split chronos or chiming watches have been sort of highly desirable. They used to kind of lead all the auction lots and, you know, they were the the top ticket items. More recently, we're seeing in the last few years sort of simpler watches are becoming hotter again. You know, if we talk about the Nautilus craze as one thing, you know, sort of time only, time and date, why they seem to be more in demand than more complicated watches. Why do you, is that something that you've noticed as well, or am I sort of off base? And if that is the case, why do you think that might be the, the case? That simpler watches are kind of it's it's a great question, accurate observation. But here's 
here's what's really happening in, in, in my opinion. We're seeing what the auctions are bringing to market that, and it is, it's once again, smaller than 1% of mm. what you see transacting in the Patek Philippe vintage marketplace is mm. sold at auction. So we're only, that's the public trading floor. It's the reality is all of the complicated watches or many of the complicated watches have already been sold and collectors just aren't letting go of them. Ah, it's right. a problem in our collecting circle. Um, as a former auction guy, and I'm guilty of this, if you don't have a cover lot, you create a cover lot. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. And that's why you started seeing a lot of nonsense with provenance. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, you'll see like some celebrity's second cousin's watch and, and, and make, they'll make a five-page note. A stuntman's watch. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's it's been taken to extremes in terms of provenance, and and everyone loves nicknames, and yes. we all we all we all do that in in the watch world, and that that's fine. But the auction houses are doing a good job promoting the idea of um, well preserved timepieces, and many of those are time only if that's mm. what's coming into the market today. Mm. I'm finding some absolutely exceptional time only time capsule pieces fresh to market unpolished from the 1950s and 60s here in the US, but I'm not finding perpetual chronos mm. in that condition. You're lucky if you can find a perpetual chrono. In that yes, sure. Condition. The numbers were so small, they're, um, they do appear and they're quickly bought and sold. Um, but what we're seeing publicly is, is much, much more limited. And, and that's why I think we're seeing now time-only pieces bringing seven figures more mm. commonly. Mm. So, so is the demand from your customers, the collectability customers, are you getting more, more demands for time-only pieces as well? Or are you still getting people getting in touch with saying, hey, I'm looking for a perpetual calendar, wristwatch, pocket watch, whatever? I keep lists um, by reference of what people uh-huh. are looking for, which is a blessing and a curse because when I get a great watch in, uh, to go out again. <laughs> I check the list, but then it's not on my site. Yeah. It's it's kind of disappointing because we all kind of like to show what's what's new. I mean, sure. the the most fun thing is the incoming tray oh. of what. <laughs> of course, and if only a certain percentage of those are meeting or going online, I mean that's that's just part of the business. So, mm. in answer to your question, there are many, not many. I have numerous collectors waiting for a fifteen eighteen, a twenty four ninety nine, the perfect one thirty. Sure. The ultimate 530, like all these like unbelievable complicated references. Um, there's just not enough supply. Right, got it. Hmm. So what I my focus is trying to buy quality mm-hmm. and trying to find pieces that have an interesting story that people haven't necessarily noticed before. Mm. And then explaining why and how it might be rarer than you think. Mm-hmm. And then if there's a story behind it and a lot of I mean, every watch has a story behind it, no matter every <laughs> price point. And that, that's a lot of fun. And that, that's the kind of thing you see on, on the website. But I do provide that bespoke service of the people looking for, for key, key references. Mm. And, uh, and trends, they change fast. It's interesting, even the last couple of years. So Patek actually still makes pocket watches. I mean, there's all these antiques that and vintage watch vintage pocket watches that you have, but there's also the new ones. 
where are all the pocket watches and who's buying them? Because we don't really hear about these pocket watches that much. Is it a very small percentage of production? Is there's a lot of different references. In fact, there are more pocket watch options than ellipse options today. Wow. Where are all the pocket watches? (laughs) (laughs) They're in my vault. (laughs) I I was going to say collectability stock. That's right. (laughs) I, I buy pocket watches voraciously. I can't think of a better place to buy incredible pieces of Patek Philippe's history than with pocket watches. And for the price of an important, um, complicated vintage timepiece, you Mm. might be able to buy 50 pocket watches, Mm. depending (laughs) on what they are. So, yes, I keep buying them. And it's it's interesting because the way a lot of dealers work is you have your, your pipelines and relationships of people that offer you things. Hmm. And when I'm offered a pocket watch, I just, I can't, I can't say no. And, uh, <laughs> and that, that, that's a lot of fun. So many, well, I, I even sometimes forget the Patek Philippe's production was entirely pocket watches from 1839 to basically 1910 when hmm. we start seeing a transition even up to 1930, I mean, it was very much leaning towards uh, pocket watches. Sure. So, so there are a lot of pocket watches out there, but there aren't a lot of good pocket watches out there. Sure. <laughs> Many sure. of them have cracked dials. Many of them have possibly water damage. Many of them have replaced cases that don't uh, check out in the archives. Mm. So when you see one that's well-preserved, I, I just jump on it because – in a world where so much nonsense is being done to watches to make mm-hmm. them look new old stock, seeing <laughs> dials refinished, there's a lot of things that are done in the marketplace that are concerning. Mm. That hasn't crossed over to pocket watches because the money, the money's not there with the fraudsters. Mm. So you're not going to take a four thousand dollar pocket watch and attempt to restore the enamel, which is nearly impossible, if not mm. impossible, in order to sell it for $4,000. Yes. So, <laughs> sure. uh, so if a, a enamel dial has a hairline crack, that's part of its history. If it doesn't, yeah. that's fantastic. Yes. So, yeah, there's a lot of pocket watches out there, and uh, and I still think they have incredible room for growth mm. in the future. You heard it here first. The future is in pocket watches. No, I've been saying that for 20 years. <laughs> I've got one. Actually, I've yeah. got more than one now, but so there you go. You're working on me. And the, the, there is something really be- – I mean, I was going to ask you about who, who's buying – I mean, I know you're buying them, but who's buying them from you? But having recently fallen head over heels into a pocket watch rabbit hole, oh, wonderful things, you know, just – the weight, the way that like the enamel dials, finding a pocket watch like this one from 1851 with a fully intact dial, it's beautiful. Some, there's something wonderful to be able to see something that's 170 years old and still pristine. It looks uh, brand new. Right? Yeah, it, incredible. It looks, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, and so many are preserved, not all, but many are preserved with their original box and certificate mm. of origin, mm. which, which I just love. Yeah. And, uh, it, who's buying pocket watches? It's I have a number of women that collect pocket watches, um, which is which is interesting. I didn't expect that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's there are a number of of men. I have uh, 
a core group of collectors that have an amazing appetite for pocket watches. And once they get into it, they want to complete verticals. You want to have a time only and then a chronograph and then a repeater yes. and maybe a split second. And, and you could climb those verticals. It's still not inexpensive. Mm. But it's not, if, if you told me I want a vintage split second cushion wristwatch, mm. you might be looking at a half million dollars. Sure. As opposed to a pocket watch, which you'll be paying less than a tenth. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> so. absolutely. And particularly with chiming watches, I find that the, the price differences are astounding. I mean, yeah. like a chiming, and, and you've you've made a video of um, three chiming minute repeaters on your on your YouTube mm-hmm. channel, uh, where you go pocket watch, pocket watch, and uh, and it just, I mean, the sound is amazing, but also the the, the price you can get a chiming Patek Philippe pocket watch for ridiculous fractions of what a wristwatch goes for. <laughs> I, I recently put a uh, hundred year old. I did this on purpose to a five minute repeater. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't repeat the hours, the quarters, and the minutes. Mm-hmm. Just the hours in every uh-huh. five-minute increment, which is interestingly in the world of paddock even more rare. <laughs> minute repeaters. Mm. I put it up, I think, for twelve thousand five hundred US, and and just made the value argument. I challenge mm. you to find something that has more impressive <laughs> technology mm. from a hundred years old or made today mm. by hand for that price point. Yeah. In case of gold, I mean, yeah, exactly. And, yeah, yeah. So one gentleman stepped up immediately and bought it, and I had two people within five minutes just be completely heartbroken. They were too slow, uh, and uh, it's first come, first serve. So there you go. It was uh, it was a lot of fun to see the demand for a five minute repeater at that level. So it just flew off the shelf. In that case, it took five minutes. <laughs> there you go. Very appropriate. So speaking of chiming watches, the most expensive ever sold uh, watch was a Grandmaster Chime, which sold an only watch for 31 million Swiss francs in November of 2019. Why was this particular watch so valuable? Because this was actually a new watch. Yes. Only watch has this wonderful tradition with, and by the way, all the money. All of it goes to um, finding a cure for Duchenne muscular dis- dystrophy. And uh, it's just, it's a beautiful charity where usually about 30 or 40 brands come together. And uh, the last few years, it's been hosted by Christie's. Um, in 2019, that was my last uh, sale at, at Christie's. And uh, I can answer your question very specifically. Why did it bring that kind of money? At auction, it all comes down to the bidder and the underbidder. Right. The buyer of that watch was going to buy that watch at any price. Mm-hmm. I was on the phone with the underbidder. He oh. also was going to buy it at any price. But everybody has a limit. Mm, and, yeah. uh, and my bidder dropped out at, uh, I believe it was $30 million, Jesus. which is that's, that's a little bit of money. And he was heartbroken. But it went to a good home. Mm. And every single, every dollar every Swiss franc went to this amazing charity. Hmm. Um, we've recently seen Patek Philippe's latest submission, and it circles back to what we said earlier. It's a clock mm-hmm. it's loaded with rare handicrafts and complications based on a clock made for J.P. Morgan in 1927. Hmm. Uh, we're all out there trying to guess what's this clock going to bring. And, and I think with a little auction magic, the charity... The, the the ignited atmosphere of a charity auction 
I, I think we're going to see a price approaching that same 30 million. It should, mm. and hopefully more. We'll see. So there's been a lot of $100 million plus artwork, mm-hmm. but there has never been a $100 million plus watch. Yes. Why is that? Because there, there are a lot of billionaires out there. There's a lot of Desi billionaires, but none of them seem to be spending 100 plus on a watch. I think it's been, a, I, want to, I don't want to say a long, slow march, because it seems to be a fast, aggressive march. towards <laughs> people seeing artwork and uh, sorry, watches as artwork, and and I think we are headed in that right direction. With watches, in many cases, there's comps, so people mm. feel very comfortable if they say, "All right, this reference bought fifty thousand mm. last season. I'm fine paying sixty thousand this season." Mm. And we see that incremental incremental growth in in mm. the marketplace. With art. It's funny because it all comes down to whether you're a collector or investor and how and why you buy. A lot of contemporary art collectors are buying. They first thing they say is investment because they think sure. they're making you're going to make money sure. or they're trying to move money. But we won't get into that. There's, lots, <laughs> uh, there's different reasons people buy artwork. Hmm. And same is true for watches, but the, the humble humble watch is not in that price point yet. I don't think we're going to see a punctuated growth where we're going to see a $100 million watch anytime soon, but we will in our lifetime. I mean, what, what happens if the Marie Antoinette comes? Yeah, I was uh, actually going to ask about that. Yeah, What happens if the Henry Graves super complication comes back? Well, the Fed prints a bunch of money. <laughs> well, you you have the box for that one anyway. If we find the, the super complication, that, yeah, it's, it's sitting one. it's sitting right here. Um, That's amazing. So your listeners only. Well, I'll sell it at a, a, a pre-auction price of ten percent of the value of the watch. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Um, I, I suspect. I mean, there is the, the watch because I've thought about the, the the comparison between fine art and fine watchmaking, and, and they both aren't. I think. There is something time limited about a, a an artist. There's, you know, there's there's only so many Rothkos you can buy because the Rothko the man has gone. Mm-hmm. There'll never be another one. I guess a lot of the watch companies like Patek Philippe, sort of, you know, they they promote is not a right word. You know, they they do this unbroken chain of continual production. So I guess it's harder to find a unicorn, you know, in that sort of continuous production space you're right something like a marie antoinette breguet watch is a one-off beautiful story behind it royal provenance Mm -hmm. you know lost stolen from a museum in jerusalem recovered in you know after 23 years or whatever it was on the run i mean there is something like that you know it's a one-off unicorn piece who knows what money can bring once you get yeah two passionate collectors or a or an institution and a passionate collector and you know sky's the limit So let's let's all try and find one. Let's, <laughs> let's find that James. So I ask about an incident in the opposite direction. Uh, about a month after the sale of the Grandmaster Chime, President George H. W. Bush had two watches come to market. Uh, I guess he was deceased at that point. His three four four five sold for sixty two thousand five hundred, and his thirty nine forty sold for eighty one thousand two fifty. Why did these watches sell for so little, especially that 3940? I mean, that's like double the price of one just off of eBay. 
Yeah, it's funny because since then the forty prices have marched upward. Whoever bought mm. that, it was a beautiful watch. Mm. Bought it for a, a song. Mm. It, this provenance is an interesting thing because it doesn't always drive the prices people expect to see. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I, and I have to credit Phillips, uh, Arel in particular. Is really they've done a brilliant job of marketing provenance in in a way that I don't think anyone else has in the the wristwatch market. And look no further than the Paul Newman Paul Newman, which we all look at that results. But the work that they put in the marketing before that was was everything. Sure. And even to this day, everyone. I mean, I love, I mean, I I did a video where I I dared to say that a Joe DiMaggio 130 is more historically interesting than a Paul Newman, Paul Newman. Mm -hmm. And I was getting, I was getting hate mail (laughs) from that. Because I dared dared to question, I didn't question the provenance, I questioned the importance of provenance. So, I mean, to me, a a steel production watch worn by a celebrity all right, that's great, but at the end of the day, it's still a steel production watch. Um, to me, a one thirty. Also, I don't care who owned it. At the end of the day, a one thirty with a Breguet dial is still a one thirty. So provenance could be funny, and and I think it has to resonate with the time and place. A one, um, the the George, um, former President uh, Bush's uh, watches. I, I don't think the the media picked up on it. Mm. It. Uh, People really didn't get excited about it. So you mm. kind of have to capture the moment at the right time and place in order for provenance to be uh, meaningful. Yeah, yeah, I didn't hear about the auction until it was over. Mm. Yes. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> Everyone was so focused, I think, on the GMT Master that was being sold, that had been worn by Marlon Brando, and that sold for like over a million. And I was thinking, what? <laughs> this makes no sense. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but the the work the, the the work of the the importance of the picking a the right auction house, but also the importance of the work that the auction house itself does in promoting in you know promoting that sale and marketing it in the right place is as you mentioned is so important. And I mean, the thing that really occurred to me was um, you know the recently the most expensive artwork that I ever sold was that um, Leonardo da Vinci Salvatore <laughs> Mundi it was four hundred and fifty million dollars. And there's all these arguments about whether Leonardo actually had a hand in it or not. Anyway, we won't even get into that. Uh, but I think what – and it was sold by Christie's. I think Christie's was so good at developing the story, you know, marketing it, even bringing Leonardo DiCaprio to look at it so they can say, look, Leonardo, modern Leonardo looks at an old Leonardo. You know, it was just such – the way they've created this aura of mystique about it and really drove – I'm sure drove the price. Why up to four hundred fifty? Oh, that is mm. Just even googling, not you looking at the YouTube videos and searching mm. uh, how they marketed that at that mm. time is an mm. exercise in auction house brilliance. Mm, absolutely. What people forget, and this is something that it took me a long time to learn at auction, is that every watch is not the the superstar lot, <laughs> um, and that's why it's great to buy. Mm-hmm. You can find every sale, you could find a bargain and you could find a piece that is, you could look afterwards, hindsight's twenty twenty. be like, I wish I'd bid on that. Sure. Um, so I truly encourage people to look at auctions because some of the best bargains are out there. And I always wondered when I was 
in the auction world, Sotheby's and Christie's is like, why are dealers buying from auction? Mm-hmm. I didn't understand that. I was like, because their cost basis is public. Why would they buy at auction? And they weren't always looking for bargains, but they were the best dealers were always looking for quality. Mm. And I've, um, I've tried to emulate some of those dealers that I've seen over the years buy the best pieces. Um, I'm going to name Davide Parmigiani, uh, who's mm. yes. probably one of the most um, celebrated market makers of the last 20, 25 years. He'd always buy the best lot. And I was like, but he's a dealer. I was like, how is he doing that? Mm. And uh, now I'm understanding why he does that and, and, and how. And, and if you buy the best, you'll always find a buyer who's willing to buy the best from you, yes. even at a higher price. That's mm. just fact. Mm. So if you could literally go into any auction, outbid the top bidder on the top lot, and you have a 99% chance you'll make money on that. Sure. I mean, that's, that's the lesson that I've kind of internalized from my auction career. But do your homework first. Yeah, the auction, great advice. Yeah. And, and auction don't buy the hype. Told you. Yeah. yeah, and don't buy the hype. That's right. If, if you're asking if you're the dumbest person in the room, you know exactly who you are. So, <laughs> so my father is a collector or was a collector of oriental rugs and mm-hmm. he got bored of them and then gave them to me. And I don't particularly have any on display as you can see in my office here. Mm-hmm. And uh, the prices have actually plunged on oriental rugs from when he bought them 40, 50 years ago. Do you think Patek Philippe will be relevant to the next generation? Why or why not? And uh, you know, how can we make sure that uh, we actually really are you know, keeping these for the next generation? The next generation wants them because I'm sitting on a pile of rugs that are in a warehouse. And that's one of my anxieties is if I buy these watches, are my kids actually going to want them? <laughs> as weird as that may sound. That's right. Recently, had to um, re-up an insurance policy, and I saw this is this true story this morning, and I saw that the exclusion for for life insurance was they will not cover under any circumstances death from a rocket propelled vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you never that's know. That's your lead story. <clears throat> so that was interesting to me in a way. There's an ICD-10 code you can bill for it uh, when you're doing the, the coding and the medical billing. Oh, wow. That sort of a thing. But anyway, I digress. So that, that shows me that society has accepted that many of us are going to go to space. Sure. And it's not outside the realm of possible mm. for, for us, <clears throat> certainly our children, to go to outer space. Mm-hmm. And without a doubt, I mean, okay, maybe some doubt, but optimistically, within 20, 30 years, there might be colonization in a way that's mm-hmm. real. Mm-hmm. And maybe almost certainly in 50 to 100 years, sure. all of the Buck Rogers, Star Trek, Star Wars that I was obsessed with as a child, there's going to be some element of truth in all of that. Sure. So, follow my bizarre logic here. Mm-hmm. In a hundred years, when you're going to your moon villa, <laughs> you're not going to be flying up oriental rugs. 
but I will have my IWC perpetual calendar and hope they'll find a little extra piece for it <laughs> for the, the right century. <laughs> Your watches. Hmm. I truly believe that, and now I'm being a little like a future thinking here, like way out there, that certain collectibles will be more acceptable for their portable nature than others. <laughs> oh, I see what you're getting at. Now, I, see what you're I know getting this at. is, some people, some of your listeners may say I'm, I'm crazy, but think about what was collectible 40 years ago, 80 years ago, 100 years ago. Your great-grandparents' silver sets are no longer desire, desirable. They're obsolete. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, and I collect uh, long case clocks, English long case clocks. You can buy anything you want right now because the prices have just plummeted. Because mm. people aren't buying long case clocks or American <laughs> tall case clocks because they're 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 truly obsolete and not portable. So I I do think that the future may have a bit of the portable nature of collectibles will become increasingly important. We're seeing it now with NFTs and mm -hmm. we're all being educated in a way that we might've never before of what do we want to have possession of? Mm. And I think maybe I hope perhaps it's optimistic that wristwatches and pocket watches may be one of the last collectibles in the future. I don't think it's going to be diamonds and stones because they seem to be manufacturing diamonds mm. and stones that are increasingly indistinguishable from naturally occurring stones. Mm. But watches have the right ingredients, the right mixture of art, technology, the handmade nature of how they're put together that they can't be replicated. And in the world of the future, being portable might mean more hundred years from now than it does today. That's so interesting. Uh, I haven't, I've never thought of it uh, in along <laughs> that line, but I think also, I guess the other thing that watches will have going for them is that, that they're actually worn on, on your person, you know, it's much, yeah. so you'll have a much more of a relationship with that object. If it's close to your skin, as opposed to a Oriental rug or a tea set or a long case clock or a desk clock, even, you know, cause it, that's an object that sits in one place. You're not, carrying it with you. So yeah, interesting. I actually think the greatest competition for the watches themselves may be NFTs of the watches in the oh, future, nice. which will really is really mind blowing. Um wow. well let's see where this all goes. Mm. So. Mm. Well look as as we start to sort of to to wrap up a little uh, to to wrap up, I know you guys have lives to return to, and you know I probably should check in on the family. Um, <laughs> what you know, I'm as as I mentioned before, so I'm sort of fairly new to sort of educating myself about Patek Philippe, and you're a fountain of knowledge. So, what would you recommend for somebody who's entering this passion for Patek Philippe or interest? What are the good resources people can use to learn about Patek? Is there any particular recommendations you'd give about that? I can't believe my primary suggestion is going to be Instagram focused for today's okay. But then we'll come back to books, which I think might be even better. <laughs> but I would encourage you to follow um, Patekaholic, just oh, yes. a wonderful way to uh, uh, see what's on his mind, see what's in the marketplace. Um, also see trends. I mean, he has a wonderful way of calling trends before they happen in the world of Patek Philippe collecting. But 
There's another account that uh, is a little less known, but could not recommend it enough, and that's Horology Anxion. Oh, that was my recommendation. Oh my goodness. I think the most thoughtful, inspiring, Mm. educational, um, horological Instagram account out there. It happens to be focused much on Patek Philippe, but not only. Mm. And uh, they haven't shared their whole story of who they are publicly, but Mm. you're welcome to go to Collectability. They did an amazing interview telling their story. Yes. On, on horology and um and uh i'm trying to get them to do a podcast they are not interested mm. at this point so the <laughs> mystery surrounding what they're doing is is brilliant but what you have are true collectors engaging with the collecting community in a way that i've never seen before mm. and they're using instagram as an educational platform that is arguably not as good as a book but in some cases better because it's so visual in their mm. Instagram stories divided by chapter. You could literally spend hours. It's mm. it's just the, the, the best Patek Philippe content I, I know. Wow. Obviously, you should also follow Patek Philippe mm-hmm. <laughs> on mm-hmm. Instagram, but you're going to see a very corporate interpretation yes. of, of the brand, and, and it's it's much more of what you would expect. But then also look at some of it's, I mean, we all do this on social media. You'll You'll... You'll see who's collectability following, um, who are each of you following, and we kind of can network and see should we be uh, following in our little subcategory and (laughs) subcommunity. There's, I mean, there's a rich community of people posting ellipse watches, which is incredible, which somehow I'm part of. (laughs) And uh, and that's that's kind of cool. But more traditionally, in terms of Patek Philippe books, I mean, there, there are numbers. I mean, of course, the official authorized biography by Nick Falks is a must mm-hmm. must have. The um, the catalog resumes from the Patek Philippe Museum, which I understand are also impossible to get, mm. are must must haves if you can get your your hands on them. Um, the the Goldberger books, steel watches in particular, yeah. um, but the auction databases are also very very useful. Increasingly mm. difficult to navigate, which I think they're yeah. doing on purpose. I mean, someday I, w- I want to look up a, a Patek Reference 96 in steel, and I, I literally pick five Picassos and Oriental rugs and uh, <laughs> things have nothing to do with watches that pop yeah. up. Yeah. But uh, paper catalogs are often fun to collect. I mean, you go on eBay, mm. auction catalogs are fantastic to resources to, to buy. Um, mm. And, uh, of course, a shout-out to the Horological Society in New York, their um their their library in midtown i don't know if you could visit just yet i don't know if it's open but once it does open this is a must must see um Mm. there's there's a lot of places to uh to learn um the nawcc library in pennsylvania unbelievable resource Mm. that that library is incredible um and around the world a lot of this is being digitized, and so it's easier to, to to search and find the answer to your to your question. Very cool. And we should also say there there is a your website collectability does have a reference section as well, so people should definitely check that out as well. But that's a that's a great answer. Thank you. And both uh, fantastic videos and a great podcast. And so there's all sorts of education to be had. Um, 
Thank you so much. It's the podcast have been a, a pet project, and my uh, my my colleague in Portugal, Carlos Torres, is is doing a fantastic job, and we alternate doing interviews and. Uh, in, inspired by the likes of you doing, <laughs> oh, I, I love the, the idea of having um, two people interview, and mm. it's becoming more people are doing it in your style. I, I think I'd like to try that in the future. It'd be a lot of fun, for sure, for sure. Well, Adam, I, I'm very lucky. Adam's the Adam's the brains here. I'm just twiddling buttons, but Adam is really the. <laughs> well, we also have to thank another person who's not here, and that's Charlie, because yes. Charlie hooked us up. So Charlie, thank you, Charlie. On yeah, books on time. <laughs> The, exactly. the, the enthusiast to, to to rival no enthusiast. He is, you know, he's truly, truly a good man. If uh, if your readers don't know it already, or your listeners, I mean, must follow at Books on Time. I mean, yeah. Charlie's Charlie's Instagram is just fantastic, and uh, his passion, his energy, his knowledge is um, wow. I'm, I'm jealous of him. So keep keep going at it, Charlie. Keep doing it. <laughs> That's it. No, he's, yeah, he's a good good friend of the show, part of the Fifth Wrist family, um, been a previous guest and a contributor as well. So, no, he's a good guy for sure. Well, Adam, how about maybe we'll throw to you because I think we've now transitioned firmly to our Instagram recommendations side of things, so mm-hmm. might as well. Ronnie Madvani, our prior oh, guest, yes. is oh, a fantastic yeah. collection. Mm. And just to name someone new that I don't think I've named, uh, Dr. Juanola, Dr. J-U-A-N-O-L-A, who yes. has a predominantly paddock collection as well. And so there's there's a lot of great collectors on Instagram, and I think you can learn a lot about the past from it. And uh, collectability as well in terms of in-depth content is a great resource. And I think there's room for growth. It's like I was just thinking, like the Rolex community has so much more, I think, depth on Instagram than particularly currently. And uh, I, I think it's a, it's a challenge to all of us, uh, Patek Philippe uh, OCD types, to dive deeper. <laughs> Speaking of OCD, is it Patek or Patek? Because I keep hearing it go both ways. Uh, I should be consistent. But when I was working at Henry Stern Agency, they said Patek Philippe. Mm-hmm. Very American, Patek Philippe. <laughs> um, when speaking with the Swiss, I would always say Patek Philippe. Ah, okay. You asked like my um, my dear colleague Tanya Edwards, who pronounces it properly with a uh, a brilliant British accent. I'm not going to even try to emulate that. So I go. Thanks for uh, yeah. helping me with my OCD here. <laughs> and Roman, what are you going to recommend? Um, so I'll do I'll do another Instagram account. So I've got somebody called Slim underscore Robert. Uh, it's great collection, uh, including what's now becoming my favorite paddock, Philippe, which is the five one three five annual calendar. Mm. Uh, but also, but also, the reason I found this person, he's got probably two of my other favorite watches. One is a Moser perpetual calendar, which I think is one of the best perpetual calendars in the market in terms of legibility and just intelligent design. Um, that's not the evolution thing, but intelligent design and intelligence. Um, slim <laughs> underscore Robert, uh, but also you know he's got like a Gleistrude original perpetual calendar, which I, I 
owned in the past. And it's great. But also there's Oris and Seiko and JLC and Amiga. So just a really stunning collection and really good pictures. Um, but, yeah, he's got that lovely Patek as well in there. Oh, that's so. great. I just started following him. That's uh... There you go, Slim Robert. You've got <laughs> hey, a growing collection. Well, look. John, thank you so much for coming in to spend the time. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you and just your enthusiasm, your knowledge and enthusiasm for all things horological, but particularly particularly is really infectious, really shines through. So I just want to thank you for coming in and sharing it with us. Uh, thank you. It's been so much fun speaking with you. Thank you, Roman. Thank you, Adam. This has been a ton of fun and uh, hope to see you in person someday soon. Definitely. I'm on the East Coast. Excellent. Brilliant. Well, look, the last thing we offer say is, you know, with Fifth Risk, we set it up as a platform by enthusiasts and for enthusiasts. So if anyone out there, if you want to join us, contribute, write reviews or come on the show, please get in touch. Follow Fifth Risk on Facebook and Instagram or on our website at fifthrisk.com. Like and subscribe. You know what to do. Follow me. I'm at Times Roman AU. My valiant host, Adam, is at Medium Watch. And our fantastic guest is John Reardon is, of course, at Collectability LLC and Collectability.com. Also, make sure you check out John's fantastic collectability podcast, um, YouTube channel, and try to hunt out his impossible to find books. They're definitely well worth well worth a go. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today and stay on time. is by the community for the community. We would love you to join the crew via our group chat on Slack. Email us at contact at fifthwrist.com and join the movement.